This is Sid Ziegler, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Level Playing Field. My name is Randy Boos. This is my podcast where I interview LGBTQ sports personalities. I am not a big fan of long intros and podcasts, so I'm going to keep this brief. My first guest is Sid Ziegler. Sid, along with his friend Jim Buzinski, found a piece of the market that wasn't being reached in 1999. In 1999, they got together and created Outsports.com. For me, Outsports was a site where I can find other LGBT members when we could talk sports. They had a front page website with news, and they had a very active discussion forum. It's here is where I, I found LGBT and sports combined. And I want to make sure Sid was my first guest. So without further delay, here is my interview with Sid Ziegler. Where were you born? Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis, Massachusetts, about 45 minutes from Provincetown. Some of your listeners might know Provincetown. Um, what are your parents' names? My dad's name is Sid, spells it the same way, and my mom's name is Debbie. And uh, do you have brothers or sisters? I have one of each. They're both younger. One is uh, one lives in San Diego, and my brother lives in South Florida, where he is a very successful Lexus salesman. What is uh, your first like memories that you have growing up? My first memory, I tell you, my oldest memory, I was about three. We lived in a very small apartment, and landlords were at the time probably in their 60s, and they had a picnic table. And I used to love to put a wrap a towel uh, around my neck and pretend I was a superhero and jump off the picnic table and pretend I was flying. And <laughs> I was either three or four. I was in nursery school for sure. That's funny. All right, so let's start talking about sports and how it um, it was a part of your life. What sports did you like growing up? My dad was a superstar basketball player in my, my hometown. He grew up in the same town that I did. And so basketball was part and parcel to, to our family story. So we watched basketball all the time when it was on. And, and growing up in the 80s, the Boston Celtics were very good. And they were the hometown heroes. So we watched a lot of Boston Celtics game. I grew up hating Los Angeles and the L.A. Lakers. And, of course, ended up living in Laker country. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up a Dr. J fan. So Philly didn't exactly have a great relationship with Boston. No, not at all. Um, And then so did you play basketball growing up? It's funny. I loved basketball. I loved shooting hoops. Um, But I remember freshman year going to the first tryout. And I remember being in the locker room. It was the first time I was ever in a high school locker room with a team. I had run cross country and run track with the, the high school team when I was in junior high school, but just didn't feel the same. And being with the jocks jocks in the locker room, and the aura about the team, I literally was with the team for tryouts for one day and just never went back. Really? So T 
team sports just was uncomfortable for you? Or just team that team? Sports. It's not the team sports were. It was there was a different vibe from the cross country and track teams to the jocks on campus. You know, the guys who every everybody knew their names and 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 they were Mr. Populars and uh, and they dated all the pretty girls and 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 that the aura on on the court and and in the locker room after one day, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it just wasn't what I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I guess being one of the big sports on campus is different than being one of the the outliers. Yeah, I mean, ba- again, basketball in New England at the time was it was I am I have to believe it was the number one sport. I mean, maybe baseball was, but in my hometown, it was basketball. The high school basketball team was everything. When did you start to realize your sexuality? Oh. I'd say, well, my sexuality, I know that when I was in middle school, I had very real crushes on a couple of girls. So I, I, I guess it was in middle school that I started to be aware of my sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when did I start to realize that I had an attraction to boys too? It was more closer to high school or junior high school. And I dated girls. Well, I dated a couple girls briefly in high school and then a couple longer term in college. Yeah, because we're roughly the same age. And I know culturally now, you know, you have LGBT characters on TV and stories and movies. Um, We didn't really have that growing up. So in in the 80s, early 90s, I could think of maybe someone on the real world. Um, PBS had shows like Tales of the City and um, Are You Being Served? So I could see where even if you didn't realize it yourself, it wasn't something that was talked about or or part of life. Well, I grew up, again, about 45 minutes, a half hour from Provincetown. And so I was very aware of gay people. It was a topic of conversation on Cape Cod. But it was a topic of conversation in a very negative way. You you did not go to Provincetown. In fact, I remember my, my high school basketball team was very popular. And people would travel all over the state to watch them. But the one place wouldn't people wouldn't travel to watch them was when they played at Provincetown High School. And I remember sitting in the stands, like so many people, so many fans um, who did make that trek, uh, or, or rather, when they came to our gym, we would just pummel them with gay taunts. And, 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 and I wanted to write about that for a while, go back and talk to the high school, because I, I, I was there in the stands just taunting those poor kids just for living in Provincetown. That's wild. Yeah, it's still going on today, though. I'm a Crystal Palace fan, and one of the big rivals for Palace is uh, Brighton in England. And they well, play this weekend, and Brighton is known for um, LGBT in the community. So, yeah. um, Proud and Palace, the um, supporters club for LGBT with uh, Crystal Palace, actually put out something today about 99 reasons to hate Brighton, but homosexuality isn't one of them. Oh, I love that. I want to track that down. I, listen, English soccer is, 
is the European soccer is the worst. It's just it's just the worst. I think soccer, but I guess that's another podcast. <laughs> um, so growing up, I guess, like you mentioned in high school, you just started to maybe think about boys, but it wasn't a totally part of your life. You graduate high school and you move across country and go to Stanford. Um, was what was the reason for the big move? Why why Stanford? Why West Coast? Because I got into Stanford. <laughs> okay, so that was I mean, your number I, one. Well, I got into Stanford, and then I when I went and visited. I remember my visiting trip there was mid April. It was just nasty when I left, rainy and cold. Then I get off the plane at SFO. And they picked you up in a in a limousine with a few other prospective freshmen, and they drive you down Palm Drive. You ever been down Palm Drive? It's just as straight as an arrow, mile long road that goes right into the heart of campus, and the Golden Mosque Memorial Church and the Rolling Green. It was, it was just paradise. So as soon as I got there. In addition to the reputation of the school, and had a great athletic program, and I was a big sportsman. It was just, it was like I had arrived in paradise. And I remember getting out of getting out of the car and going right to a payphone and calling my mom and saying, "Cancel my trips to University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't need to see anymore. This is where I'm going." How did your mom take that? She was telling me for a while that she wanted me to stay in the Northeast. But I think somebody got to her and she realized that Stanford represented an opportunity that if I wanted to take it, I had to take. So how was freshman year at Stanford for you? First quarter, the first memorable, I went away from my parents. I'd never even been to a camp, really, um, uh, you know, a sleepaway camp. So being away from my Family three thousand miles away. I was, I was miserable. But I started to make friends, and you know, this is like the story that a lot of people have. You know, you start to make friends, and you start to get into a routine. And I got a job on campus, and slowly I started to. It, it became home, and and by the end of the year, California was where I was going to spend the rest of my life. I just, I, I never wanted to go back. Were you playing like intramurals at all or just attending sporting events? Because obviously Stanford has football, basketball as their big sports. Um, swimming is still one of the big ones. Yeah, Beth, the football team was very good. Denny Green was the coach that freshman year and they they won a bowl game. The men's basketball team was very, very good. The women's basketball team won the national championship my freshman year, I think. So it was it was it was neat on campus and yeah, I played I, I very quickly discovered ultimate frisbee, which is probably my favorite sport I've ever played. It's just a lot of fun. I'm very competitive in California, and I played a little bit of flag football and some basketball and other sports. Now at Stanford, when I when I started this and you were going to be my first guest, I did a little research, and one of the things that I found interesting about you is you are um, you have been a part of founding co-founding. I think, what, four or five different things. The first I was surprised was your Stanford chapter of your fraternity. Yeah. How did Delta Chi? How did that come about? 
That's a good question. Uh, it was my sophomore year. Fraternities weren't on my radar screen at all. <clears throat> it was my freshman year, my sophomore year. And this, this fraternity had been on campus, got kicked off, and was trying to get back on campus. And they had a contract with the university when they left that if they were able to get 45 or 42 um, members by X date, then they could have their house back. And of course, the university thought, well, this is impossible. No, no, no one over the course of three or four years is going to get go from zero to 45 members. And myself, a friend of mine, and a couple of other guys said, I don't know, this sounds interesting. It's a challenge. So there was a guy at the, at the National Fraternity who kind of gave, gave us some guidance, gave us some resources. We recruited a couple more people, and, and I think we had about six or seven members when we, it was the last year to get to 45, and we needed like 30, 39 <laughs> more members. And so we, we kind of realized what we had. We had this opportunity where 39 guys or 40 guys could decide to live together for the rest of their time at Stanford, and they would get what they wanted, where instead of... Well, some of you are going to be a Sigma Chi, and some of you are going to be SAE, and some of you are going to not be in a fraternity at all. And we identified two or three friend groups that had formed among the freshman dorms. And we said, listen, you have 20 guys. You, you, all 20 of you can live together for the rest of your time at Stanford if you join a fraternity. And we needed 39 guys, and I think we got 43. <laughs> The look on the Stanford administrators' faces when we presented them with the 40, I think we had 46 or 47, whatever we have, we beat it by one or two, the minimum we needed. The look on their faces, and they challenged it, re-challenged it, and it was rock solid, and we got our, we got the house back. Now, yeah, I, can, I just got news that they've, uh, they've, kicked the, they've kicked the fraternity out of their house again, so that's Stanford, that's, you know, that's, that's, academics don't like fraternities one bit because they can't control them yeah and then during high school or college excuse me and i know this because of uh i feel like i should mention dan trainer and his podcast same team um i heard your interview there and this is when you started to uh is this your first boyfriend happened at stanford or was it after no no it was after it was after i uh, i i i Four days after I graduated from Stanford, I packed up my pickup truck, drove to L.A., and moved into, it was over the summer, so the fraternity house, my fraternity's house at UCLA, it's pretty empty. And so I rented a room for them for, from them for next to nothing, and so I would, go to, I would go to UCLA campus, and so nearby fields, to play Ultimate Frisbee. And I was devout Christian, uh, I was getting over a breakup with my girlfriend. I was heartbroken. And I, one day I went to play and there was this guy there who I couldn't stop thinking about him in a way that I had never been able to, to, to get anybody out of my head before. It, he just completely, I became obsessed with him. And, and I literally, I'm very quickly said, oh, I'm gay. <laughs> came out, came out to him, 
came out to friends, came out to family. He and I dated for a while, and there's been no looking back since. How did the um, experience coming out to your family, how did that go, considering they were conservative, Christian? They weren't Christian. They were oh, conservative, okay. but they weren't Christian. I was Christian, but they weren't Christian. Oh, okay. I, I had gravitated toward the church when I was in high school, uh, and, and, I, and I became very Christian, but my parents were not. Oh, interesting. In fact, my dad couldn't, couldn't give a crap about Christ or the Bible or anything. But, there, but he was very conservative, and uh, I, I, I sent them a letter. They called me that night. They didn't have much to say. My mom just said, please don't tell anyone else. I said, well, it's a little too late because <laughs> my entire life in L.A. knows. And they just said, please don't tell anyone back home. So I said, okay, I won't. <laughs> the next day, my mother goes over to her parents' house and tells them, and, and my grandmother says, well, well so what? Uh, Myrtle and Maxine have been together for 30 years, old family friends. And my mother's like, they're lesbians? <laughs> and my grandmother's like, uh, they're two women who've lived together for, for their entire lives. Yeah, they're lesbians. And my mom was just kind of shocked that my grandparents just kind of didn't care that much. That's cool that it was that easy for your family to accept. Well, no, it's it went. Uh, there were a lot with my dad in particular. It was a lot of months and years of easing him into it and shocking him into it. There were, you know, there were uh, poorly delivered messages, and he never said, "I hate you" or "You can't be this." He just was always honest that, Sid, I just am struggling. I don't know how. I don't know what to do about this. And it was really when he started talking to his friends that were his age. My dad's a plumber, and, and there was a guy who was an electrician and a guy who was a carpenter. And the three of them would get together for coffee every morning. And uh, in my little small town in Massachusetts, and one day my dad told them, that I'm gay, and they're like, so? <laughs> we don't care. And I think my dad had been worried about what his friends would think. Um, but he, he quickly came to realize that he actually had a gay friend um, who would never come out to him, and, and his other friends just didn't care. And so this was what, roughly 1995? Yeah, late 90s, 97, maybe something like that. That's it, it's funny how um, when you just start talking about it, it makes it easier for a lot of people. Obviously, it's going to cause issues with some. Some are going to be accepting, some aren't. But um, just generally talking uh, makes things a lot better. Look, I, I tell people all the time that our, our community, our Society doesn't get enough credit for the acceptance that exists for LGBTQ people. We may debate about transgender people in, in, in sports, and we may debate about marriage, but just the acceptance of, of, of gay people in the community or in the friendship circles, it has transformed. So I talk about that all the time, but on the flip side, I've never met my husband's father. My husband's father refuses to acknowledge my existence. He refuses to meet me. 
We've been together for 16 years, and I've literally never met him. So, so wow. yes, there's all this acceptance, and then they're just the occasional idiot who has to behave like a Neanderthal. Yeah. That's wild. So we'll go back to, um, you graduate from Stanford. You spend the summer in UCLA. What is your first job out of college? <laughs> I was a waiter at Mario's Italian restaurant in Westwood, right down the street from UCLA. I was doing that. And then I started doing some production jobs. I wanted to work in, in TV and film. So I started working a couple production jobs. Um, my first quote unquote real job was at Disney. Uh, I was an assistant in, at Disney Channel. And I was there for five years and it went from assistant to coordinator to manager. Um, and when I left, I was in the I was working in, in the music department of of the, of Disney Channel. So I was kind of overseeing um, a lot of the music that ended up in Disney Channel movies and series. And so, um, you know, working with Samantha Mumba and. And sync and Aaron Carter and and and, and getting their and their their music in, in different movies we did like you know series like Even Stevens and Kim Possible and and things like that so it's a lot of fun when I when I meet people in their uh, early thirties or late twenties and they get all giggly because they actually recognize the stuff that I worked on. <laughs> so did you get involved with Radio Disney then too, or was that a separate division? Yeah, I mean separate division, but. Well, I, I would work with them with Hollywood Records, Radio Disney, Disney Channel. We were in constant communication to support what one another was doing. Particularly if, if Hollywood if a Hollywood Records artist was involved, that Hollywood Records is, is Disney's record label, then everybody was involved to try to promote what they were doing. Oh yeah, they do uh, do a good job at cross promoting. <laughs> yes. What was the environment like for you there, being a out gay male? Uh, it's funny. I'll tell this story. So, uh, I really, while I was coming out, was while I was at Disney, and I was there for a year, and I was in the sales department. And Disney Channel had gotten new management, uh, new president, new programming director, new everything. And they, the, the, the vice, the, the senior vice president of, of, of programming, that is, he was overseeing the development of the TV shows and the movies. Um, he gave this presentation to the sales department about how Disney Channel was looking at families in a new way. That families could be a kid raised by two grandparents, it could be a single mom, a single dad, it could be black family, Jewish family, and they went, I mean, he laundry listed all the different kinds of families, but he never said, you know, a mom, a, a, a girl with two dads or a boy with two moms, or he never said anything like that. And this was 1997. And I kind of stewed about that overnight. And so I went in early the next day. Remember, I'm an assistant in the sales department. This is the second most important person at the company. <laughs> So I decided to charge back into the office early the next morning, and I penned a, a four-paragraph 
email to him that said, I, you know, it was great to hear, but I was really disappointed that you missed an entire growing section of, 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 uh, of our country. And that's, you know, two, two people of the same sex raising children together and, and blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't 15 minutes later when the phone, uh, my boss's phone rang and it was the vice president's assistant. And he said, is Cynthia there? I said, sure, thank you. Well, Cynthia comes storming out of her office and looks at me and says, what did you do? <laughs> I said, uh, what do you mean? She's like, why does Rich Ross want to talk to you in a half hour? And it was a, a big departmental meeting. And, you know, you're probably going to get fired. Sorry, nothing I can do to protect you. Well, I go up to Rich Ross's office and Rich sits down and asks him questions. And lo and behold, he shows me a picture of his husband who just had back surgery and, and I have back problems. And we talk for an hour. And at the end of it, he says, I want you to come work for me. What you did took a lot of guts. And I, and, and I want you, I want people like you in my department. So it ended up <laughs> working out great. But I look back and think, what the hell was I doing? <laughs> you know, it still was probably a good 10 years or so before they had a gay or lesbian character on a show, though, wasn't it? Oh, they haven't. They didn't have a gay. I, they just had a gay or lesbian character like two years ago. Oh, trust me. Every six to nine months, I would say to him, because he and I became friends. I would say to him, Rich, you know, when are you going to make a change about this? When are you going to do something? And what, what they did is they would weave in characters that didn't fit stereotypes right wouldn't say that this character is gay um in any way shape or form but but you know started exploring with kids that that didn't that that you know every boy wasn't either a jock or a clown there was a lot of room in between and there were sensitive boys and there were more masculine girls so they played around with that but they didn't have a, like a fully out character i i think until boy a few years ago yeah, my family watched Good Luck Charlie, a TV show, like 10 years ago, five years ago. And they actually, when they had two moms, a couple come right. on the show. and That's right. That was their big, I think that was probably their first. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think they had a, maybe a, a boy character a couple years before that, um, that they alluded to. more. But anyhow, it took a long, long time. Yeah. So back at your, you're at Disney. And is did you meet Jim Wall at Disney or? I did. I mean, literally two weeks after I came out to this ultimate Frisbee player who then came out to me. I did not know that he was gay. Um, he said, I want to bring you to Gay Pride. And so we went to the L.A. Uh, gay Pride Festival and... Uh, PJ was was the ultimate player's name, and he saw somebody he recognized and went up, and it was Jim Bozinski who was behind the table for the Gay Flag Football League, and Jim and I chatted, and we just hit it off right away. I, I started going over to his house to watch football, and I went and played football with his group, and we became friends very, very quickly. And how quickly did that turn into the conversation about outsports? It was three years later. We were we were uh, on Cape Cod, 
on just on vacation together, visiting my parents, going to Provincetown, and and he was he was reading the Wall Street Journal, and I was reading the Sports Illustrated, and the Wall Street Journal at the time in, in 1999 was was wall to wall tech coverage, and we just started talking about you know why isn't there a gay Sports Illustrated, and well could we do that, and well this internet thing could you do it on the internet like it, could we do it there I don't know how to do it how do we figure out how to do that. And, and so I think that was August of 99, and three months later, we just hit publish for the first time on this ugly website, but, <laughs> but it was at least a start. When I started thinking about OutSports, and when I first found it, I must have found it that first year, early 2000. Um, I went back on the archives to look at the old website, and it's funny to see the stories that you guys have covered over the years. Um, it's been a lot. We've, we've covered a lot of stuff. When you think that there aren't LGBTQ athletes or coaches out there, I, in fact, I was just looking through the archives about an hour ago. It's, it's incredible, the things that we've covered and the ground that we've broken. Yeah, I mean, um, like I remember, well, honestly, what I remember the most about the early years of OutSports was the discussion group. Because yes. you had the front page but the discussion group is where all the action happened yes um you had i mean um brady anderson gabe kapler <laughs> um joe and philly being one of the members that was very active yes yeah um, yeah so it's it was funny a, it was a whole community that was that had built up around out sports do you find because in what, 2012, 13, you guys sold the Vox Media? Is that when uh, you went to SBNH? That's, that's right, yes. Yeah. When you had the old outsports, it, it seemed to me, and maybe it was just my own perception, because that's what I went to, um, it seemed more of a community group. When you sold the SBNation or Vox Media and became part of SBNation, it became more of the the new site it is now. Did you get any backlash for that change or was oh, it welcome? Sure. Oh, it was, it was, it was very tumultuous and it was just so unfortunate, you know, so, um, SB nation has an entire system where it, that it interact uses to interact with its readers called fan shots and, and and there it is essentially a discussion board but our members simply decided that we had somehow betrayed them by removing the discussion board that the system that was in play that the new system simply they refused to use it and goodbye forever and it was certainly disappointing because a lot of these people that we had gotten to know over the years and who had contributed to the site just, just decided to say goodbye. And it was, it, was, it was so odd. Jim and I just kept scratching our heads and talking to them. And they're like, sorry, too bad. We don't like the new system. Goodbye forever. 
all right, well, this is the way, this is the, this is the way, this is what SB Nation is, this is what Fox Media is. We have to go in this direction. So it, it was unfortunate, but I can tell you it didn't hurt our traffic. Well, yeah, you guys have certainly grown with your um, your writing. I mean, you guys cover so much more now. You're getting so many stories now. Which part of it is just the generation now that's coming out are younger, more accepting, so you're getting stories weekly, it seems like, of someone new coming out. Oh, it's, it's, it's multiple people. We can't even keep up with the stories of people who want to share their stories. But, but you know, I, I do every once in a while look back Longingly at that time when we had a real, there was a, it was a different community. Back then, the, com- the outsports community was mostly sports fans. Mm-hmm. Today, the community is mostly athletes. And, and that has been the biggest shift. That I think the people who identify with outsports are the athletes and the coaches. And there's a real community there. And certainly f- fans too. But, you know, we also shifted our coverage. We went away from covering you know, the NFL on a weekly basis or just talking about some cute guy in the NBA. We left all that behind mm-hmm. and, and decided to become a, just a, a slightly more serious publication. Yeah, I mean, you guys do a great job. And then you guys just added a new managing editor, Don? Yeah, well, listen, it's been, been for 20 years, two cisgender white gay men running the site. And, and we want to feature more diverse voices. Dawn is a trans woman, and she's fantastic, uh, works with us both really well. And right now we're looking for more contributors. Whether um, some, We're looking for some bloggers. We're looking for people to run social media. And, uh, yeah, so there's, there's lots of opportunity to, to be part of Outsports today. This sounds horrible to ask, but do you think you benefit from what happened? Was it Out.com that – had the issue with paying contributors. Well, I'm one of the con- I'm one of the contributors that they haven't paid. So, uh, <laughs> sore subject. After telling me they were going to pay me, uh, well, unfortunately, the media business is tough. It's, it's tough to stay afloat, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, you could have a good year, a good couple of years, and you expand your your staff, and then all of a sudden something goes haywire. You know, Facebook changing its algorithms dramatically affected the media business. So I, I don't think we've benefited really. I mean, certainly there are more LGBTQ writers available today than there were six months ago because some of these places have had to uh, make cuts. But uh, I wouldn't say we benefited. We certainly haven't tried to benefit. That has not been... Um, a conversation or, uh, you know, part of our strategy, which is we're just in an amazing position to have the support of Vox Media and SB Nation. And they see the growth potential of Outsports and and they want to make that happen. That's cool. You have a great partner to work with. So you guys, you and Jim create Outsports. You guys also created um, a flag football organization, correct? Yes. I, uh, Again, Jim had this organization, this L.A. Flag Football League, and I just came in and just the way I am, I start trying to help run things. And and 
I had this idea in like 2000 or 2001 to start a gay Super Bowl because we knew about a team in San Francisco and we knew about a team in Boston. So one, we just held, um, let's see, it was October. We just, one October 2002, uh, we just, we held a, a tournament in, in LA and called it the, the gay Super Bowl. It was Boston, LA, and San Francisco. And then the following year, we added three more cities and it was in San Francisco and it just kind of took off. And so we started this, the National Gay Flag Football League. That's kind of the umbrella organization for this tournament. And it's, it's, um, it's an umbrella organization for a lot more than that today. Is that how you got involved with refereeing or were you doing refereeing before that? Yeah, I, 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 well, I was playing in these tournaments and captaining. And then I just decided I was kind of done with it. And refereeing was something that I knew uh, I, could, I could do for as long as I wanted. I, I, today I work with referees who are in their 70s. So it's, it's less taxing on the body than playing. It takes less time than coaching. I, and I thought about getting into coaching high school football. That would have been uh, a lot of time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up refereeing, and I love it. Yeah, so you're still doing that now? Yep. Are, are you, you guys are still part of the flag football organization, right? Personally, no. We've both just kind of drifted away from it. Every once in a while, someone will call asking for advice. But, you know, I, I, uh, my history has been to create something, build it, and then hand it off to somebody else, except for outsports. For whatever reason, through all the different things that I've created and, and moved past, outsports is the one that I haven't let go. And I think because I always see more work to be done, I see the potential behind it, I see the good work that we're doing, and I hear from people that we're having an impact on people's lives. So I don't, I don't want to let it go quite yet. Do you think there will ever be a major star that comes out? Or do you think it's going to be where we get all these younger people coming out when they're in high school, when they're in college? So by the time they make it in the pros, they're already out. It's not a story anymore. People have been asking me this question since about 2003. Uh and we still hypothesize, well, chances are that they'd be the, at this point, I have no idea. I've stopped thinking about gay athletes in the professional sports. I've stopped being concerned with them. Uh, I, I, my focus has been to, to continue to elevate general conversation, uh, to help as many athletes in high school and college as I can, because professional athletes are going to do they're going to do what they want to do and, and what they need to do for their careers. And I understand and respect that. You know, a couple of years ago, I opened my big fat mouth and said something that I didn't even mean, but I still said that I said that closeted gay athletes in the pro sports are cowards. And uh, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. Uh, when you're talking about a, a, an average of a three year career. And I mean, even if you're really good, you know, you could flame out after five or six years. We just, I just wrote Ryan O'Callaghan's autobiography. I mean, you had, you had an excellent football player who lasted six seasons. And, 
and he's disabled and he won't earn another penny. Well, maybe maybe he'll earn a penny, but he won't ever earn an, a, a, a living wage again. So there's so much that has to go into into this. The more and more I think when when the day the day a big time professional athlete will come out is when they realize they can make a lot more money off of it. And that's not being cynical or saying they're they're being vapid. That's just the way it is. That's sports. Sports is a business. It's not a charity. Sports is a business. And they have to make their living. And, and I understand that. So that's why I focus more on the college kids and the high school kids because the reason they play sports and what they need to get out of sports is a lot different. Yeah. But don't you think the money's there already? I mean, you have amateur or maybe not top tier athletes coming out who are getting the, the marketing money, the, the ad money from companies. And it seems like it's already here for them. I couldn't agree more. Michael Sam, he never played a down in the NFL. And in the first six months, he got lots of offers to endorse products. If somebody's actually in like the NFL and comes out, Mark Cuban has said this for years, that there's, there's a fortune waiting for that person. But they just, you know, for whatever reason, they're, I think that I, I might, I think, so I, and, and the reason I think this, I think the agents are a big problem. And the reason I think that is because when, when Michael Sam's agents came to, uh, to Howard Bragman and to me to ask us for advice on what they should do, they also went to their mentors. And their mentors said, don't do this. Don't do this. The world's not ready. The NFL is not ready. Fans aren't ready. Teammates aren't ready. Sponsors aren't ready, which is all a bunch of bullshit. But... Uh, but the, the, their, the other agents, the older agents who knew better, said, don't do this. And, I, and my guess is that's what any athlete who goes to their agent and says, I want to do this, they're going to be met with, most of the time, don't do this. Yeah, it, it, it's surprising still they haven't come out, but eventually they will. The last thing I want to touch on is um, you just tweeted out this morning, obviously, if you follow... If people follow you on Twitter, they know the trans debate's huge right now. You're constantly replying to people. <laughs> <laughs> it's been entertaining to read. <laughs> what was that? I said against my better judgment. <laughs> yes, I'm responding to people. But I think you're handling it great. And I love that you came out with that article today on Outsports.com where you talked about like a 10-month process to understand the whole debate more um, and like you said, you don't know if in the 10 months you'll have a final answer, but I like that you're open to admitting you don't know. Cause I think there's so many unknowns right now. Um, well, what, what I know is the answer is not, uh, every trans athlete should be banned from every women's sport, right? That's not the answer that, that I know. And I thought I knew until this morning that the answer is also not trans women should be able to just enter any sport in any league, wherever they want, whenever they want, regardless of hormone therapy. I have discovered that there is a whole group of, uh, of upper level female women, uh, trans women in sports who believe that, yes, trans women should be able to compete in the Olympics without any hormone therapy and no surgery. 
as women. So I'm, I'm already learning something new. It is going to be the next frontier for sure to get this settled, which who knows when that'll be. Opinions well, let's are... be clear. Let's be clear. It's pretty settled. Um, in the NCAA and the International Olympic Committee and many other governing bodies have come to the same conclusion that trans women can participate in women's sports with, after they take certain steps. My big question right now, though that may change, is what are those steps? Mm-hmm. All the different values that we have to take into account, participation, inclusion, fairness, uh, uh, science, medicine, with all these things, what are the steps that you have to take to maintain the integrity of women's sports uh, and at the same time make sure that trans women aren't just being evicted from sports? Do you think the – and obviously this isn't for like the uh, – how it is personally for the athletes, but do you think it's being made a bigger issue than it – actually is just with the amount of professional athletes or um, athletes that are com- going to compete at that level. But you'd think that the because pe- the people, what I'm trying to get at is the people who are against trans athletes competing at all, make it out in their head or what they type that um, th- there's just going to be men competing as women, like in every sport. Right. And it's just not the case. Uh, of course not. This is, the, this is the same straw man that was put up in the 70s when Renee Richards wanted to compete. It's, every time this comes up, it's the same thing. You know, They show a picture of Shaquille O'Neal and say, well, if Shaquille O'Neal wanted to dominate women's basketball because, because there are so many men just dying to make little to no money, uh, be completely disrespected for all of their athletic accomplishments and somehow go compete against women. I mean, Martina, for Martina Navratilova, this is the, the part of her column that made me so pissed. She knows so well there is no, that the, the amount of money in women's sports is so much lower than men's sports. And they are the female athletes are disrespected on a daily basis. For her to say that some man is going to leave his sport, transition genders, just to go like she said, like become famous and make a lot of money, it's just so intellectually disingenuous for her of all people to say that. Mm-hmm. I look forward to hearing this process that you're going to go through, though. It's it'll be educational. Um, I myself, I'm on the same process because I will admit I'm not the most knowledgeable on that. Um, there are some people I'm going to follow. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name. Dr. Rachel McKinnon? Is that her name? Rachel, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you should follow Miana Bagger. She was one of the very first trans athletes in the whole world, trans pro athletes. Miana Bagger, M-I-A-N-N-E, Bagger, B-A-G-G-E-R. All right, cool. Very thoughtful. Yeah, I will definitely follow her. Um, I uh, I want to thank you for this interview today. Before we go, I have my final twenty questions. Okay. It's a mix of pop culture. Some's dumb. Um, 
like I said before, it's inside the actor's studio. And then uh, we'll end with a, uh, a final question about youth. Okay. So who was your first celebrity crush? Was it John Schneider? Is that, is that uh, Luke Duke on the Dukes of Hazard? John Schneider, I think. It was. Yeah. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a favorite podcast? I used to, but I just I stopped. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Walt Disney. That's a good one. Who inspires you? Boy. I don't know who inspires me. I mean, I know that that has shifted over time, but today I get most inspired, I think, musically. I get moved musically. And it could be uh, Lady Gaga, I think, is just a really incredible artist. Um, and then there are some, I like dance music, so there are some DJs. Um, so I think I feel inspired when I listen to certain music though those people may not be particularly inspirational. Uh, what is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? <sighs> well, the thing that comes to mind is what the most recent thing, that Jesse Smollett is now facing 16 counts of, of felony indictments. Uh, that's pretty interesting. I just read that. That is crazy. Do you have a streaming obsession right now? What have you binged on Netflix or Hulu or... I don't watch a lot of TV at all. Uh, again, it's music, and, and I've been listening to the Star is Born soundtrack in, in, incessantly for the last few days. Okay. What fictional character would you like to meet in real life? <laughs> fictional character? Wonder Woman. Oh, that'd be cool. If animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? <laughs> But like what, what, like, uh, like a monkey or a zebra, you mean? Yeah, or anything. Well, I know the one that I want to talk to most is, is my two cats, Cece and Leo. Yeah. But what general animal would be the most annoying? I don't know. I hate hyenas. <laughs> All right, we'll go with that. Do you have a hero? I, there are so many. There are so many. People in my personal life and people that I followed since I was a kid or recently. I mean, in my book that I wrote a few years ago, I talked about Fallon Fox, the transgender MMA fighter, mm -hmm. who I just think, you know, somebody who faced such hatred and somehow still got in that ring and competed. That, that takes a lot of guts. Yeah, it does for sure. Um, what is your favorite word? Awesome. What is your least favorite word? Uh, snatch. <laughs> what turns you on cre creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Music. If I have to write something and, and, and I want to through my writing convey a particular emotion, I will sink myself into that emotion. So if I want, if I want this to be fun and light and energetic, then I am listening to offer Nassim. And if I want, if, if it, if I want the, the reader to feel melancholy, 
than I'm listening to like the score of Inception or something like that. All right. What turns you off? People who don't smile. I don't understand. Like, and in the gay community, a lot of times they're in their 20s and they're incredibly beautiful. If you're in your 20s and you're incredibly beautiful, you should be smiling all the time. You should use that to make other people feel good about themselves. Don't feel like you need to throw attitude at people to, I don't know, make yourself feel better. It doesn't make any sense, but that makes me crazy. All right. What's your favorite curse word? I, mean, I say the F word a lot. You could say I, it on this podcast. Nah, I don't need to say it. I say the F word a lot. All right. What sound or noise do you love? I love my cat. My, uh, my cat, Leo, has this, this littlest, littlest squeak of a meow. And Cece, when you walk in the door, sometimes she chatters like, I love that. That, that makes me happy. That lets me know that they're, they're happy to see me. Yeah. What sound or noise do you hate? People, people chewing food. <laughs> I, I, that makes me crazy. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I took a pass at screenwriting for a while, but I kept drifting back to this. And I thought I would like to, to get into politics, but politics is literally, the, and I mean literally, it is literally the sewer of our society where the worst people in the world go to, to prop themselves up and steal your money. And it is disgusting. And, and I have too much integrity to do it. That is a good one. I take it that would be the profession you do not want to do. <laughs> well, I, there are a lot. Listen, there are lots of, uh, you know, I don't want to collect garbage. I, I don't want to be a surgeon. There are lots of other things I would do. Uh, I would I'd be a politician before I was lots of other things. Uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Some acknowledgement that my life wasn't a waste of time. All right, this is the final question. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is um, I want kids to know that they're not alone, that they have support, not just from hopefully friends and family, but from people out on the internet. Um, so if you're able to go back in time and talk to yourself at 12 or talk to some kid at 12 and tell them something about your sexuality and how you are now, what would you tell them? One of the things that I've discovered in just the last few years are these gay dance parties. And I end up at well, maybe one or two a month or every six weeks. And every time I'm surrounded by people, gay men, hundreds of them or thousands or tens of thousands of them, who are in such a good mood, they're with their friends, they're watching this light display that's like something you've never seen the the the, the dj is playing the, the funnest music and i say to people all the time on the dance floor 
wouldn't you love to to take your 14 year old self and show them this because this is just the 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 best place in the world you could be right at this moment and they only last a few hours but guess what i wish they could see that there are so many other men who are just like you and my god once you get through all the nonsense and you get older everything is going to work out really well for you in regards to being gay that's cool well said i appreciate it for you coming on uh thank you for doing this thank Um, you being my first guest i really appreciate the time he took to talk with me i also want to thank eric radford who provided the music that you hear throughout the show the title of the piece is called grand prix next week will be eric radford have a great time and hope to see you back next episode